A few introductory comments. Today we begin a new strategic plan, a new ministry year, and we begin a new sermon series. So if I could have slide two, please, Jim, just a quick overview. Just a reminder, so we've used this, basically this, this uh, image in the last two years. We've changed colors. What's different is what's around the outside. Instead of flourishing in exile, we're gonna be a people in the next three years who make a commitment to flourish in love. And that means we're gonna to learn to love God love neighbor, and love our world. So when you look at the four core values, identity, belonging, purpose, and intimacy, Mike alluded to it, and you heard some of it on the screens. We are trying to create all our ministries from the adults, students, children, all are going to be addressing one of those four core values. We want to completely continue to embed this into our hearts and our lives. So that's where we're going Remind you at the very center, our ends policy, for those of our guests, the purpose of this church. Third church is 152 years old. The purpose of this church is to become a people together who bear the fruit of the Spirit. When people interact with us, they experience a people who are sharing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness faithfulness, and self-control. That's the first mark of who we want to be. The second mark is we are people growing in intimacy with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're growing in that relationship. And the third one is we're a people who are growing in an ever-increasing sacrificial generosity. What drives us is God's word and God's spirit. We want to be a people who know that we are loved by God. We have an identity in Christ that we belong and there's purpose and we're gonna together flourish in exile. So that's where we're going. The preaching series, can I have slide three please, Jim? So in the next, from this Sunday, uh, September 5 until the last Sunday of August of 22, we're gonna focus on four books of the Bible. So for the next 12 weeks, we're gonna flourish in exile by looking at our death. By looking at our death. It's going to be surprising where we're going to go with this. I hope you'll come every week for 12 weeks. Please, it takes time for this to make sense to us. We're going to flourish in exile from January 5 until Easter by people who embrace the reign of Jesus the King. We'll look at the book of Mark for 16 weeks ending on Easter Sunday. Then following that for five weeks, we're going to flourish in love by being a people who live simply, kindly, graciously using the book of James. And then following that, from the, that time until the end of August, we're going to look at the Psalms. The Psalms who give voice to our humanity, give voice to our relationship with God, and give voice to life and prayer. So we're going to do that over this next year. But now we're going to talk about Ecclesiastes. And I'm, 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 um, I'm going to go a different direction. May, may I take a, some, some risks this morning with you? Is that okay? Eric says no. Please, Eric. Look at it. Um, let me, t- let me, I'm gonna, I'd like to, I'd like to re- actually walk into the congregation multiple times at the front end. This series is very, very personal to me. So I have been a pastor for 40 years. And so in my, my life as a pastor, I have, I have officiated more than 500 funerals. So that means in my work life, about every six or seven weeks, I stand at a casket in an open grave. And in this room, 
are scores of people with whom I have walked. You've invited me to walk with you to the valley of the shadow of death. And then even more personal, not just my relationship with you. Lane's mom and dad died when they were 67 and 69. And then my son died when he was 27. And my dad just died. So people often say to me, Kevin, you, you live such a serious life. Well, if you were me, and every six or seven weeks you were confronting death, how would you live? As I get older, I have less and less time for frivialities because I am just so mindful of what the short amount of time we have to live. So let me tell you about this series. The series in Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to show you a video in a minute to kind of give you an overview of the whole thing. But let me just describe where we're going these next 12 weeks. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about death all the time. In America today, I can talk, you can talk, we can blog, we can post, we can write, we can talk about just about anything and no one really responds except if they're happy or sad, you know, blah, blah, blah. How much conversation do we actually have about our own death? So my dad's funeral, our, one of our grandchildren, four years old, his name is Cohen. Cohen saw my dad in the casket. And Cohen says, Grandpa, can we go see your dad? I said, yeah. So he took my hand and we walked up to the casket. And probably for 20 minutes, he was touching my dad's body. I could just see his little mind. Where is Grandpa's dad? And he kept touching and standing there. And I just stood next to him. I just watched. In his little mind, he's trying to understand what happens when people die. And for many of us, we want to be young. We want to act young. We want to have a good and full and fun life and all those things. But we live with a fear of death. Now, may I have a big umbrella of mercy? really big, in the midst of all that we've experienced with COVID, one of the things I have seen is a tremendous fear of death. And this young woman is a minister to Haiti. They just watched the earthquake affect a country. And how many people, I was talking to Tim Brand about the Haitian people, and he said they experience death and loss and sadness all the time. They embrace their deaths all the time. But interestingly, they are free to live. So that's the series. We are, I'm going to invite us to embrace the reality that each of us is going to die. But it's not to be morbid because once we embrace that we're going to die, then we can make choices to actually live. And Ecclesiastes, the teacher, does such interesting conversation about what we can do in the short time we have on this planet. And it ends up so positive, but you got to stay with me because it takes about seven weeks before it starts to really register. What is he talking about? So let me give you the three endpoints. We're going to talk about death. We're going to talk about living today in light of our deaths. And we're going to live in light of the future which is to come, which is better and more beautiful and more significant than anything we can imagine. 
So that's what we're going to do for these 12 weeks. Well, let me, let me give you one, one quick two, two slides. Jim, I think it's... Um, I better look to be, be careful. Can I have a slide uh, four and six, please? So this is the question that I'd like to ask for 12 consecutive weeks. Can we be persuaded that rightly preparing to die can free us to truly live and to live from this life into the next. I was with my dad about a month before he died and he had a wonderful way to talk about his death. Kevin, my boy, I'm going to change addresses soon. And that's what happens when we die. We transition from this life to the life to come. Can we be persuaded that rightly preparing each of us, each of us, that where we are going to die can free us to actually live? The next slide, slide six, please, Jim. So here's what I'm going to say for the next 12 weeks in four bullet points. Here we are. Number one, could we all acknowledge the brevity of our lives? My son lived 27 years. Lane's mother lived 67 years. My dad lived 91 years. We all, but it's brief. It's brief. Can we acknowledge the brevity of life? Then will we embrace our own deaths so that, here's the purpose, we can enjoy this life, what we have right here, knowing that a good God will judge rightly. Here's the purpose. So that after the judgment, all will be new, good, beautiful, and abundant. And let me talk about judgment for a minute now. In our tribe, in our tradition, oftentimes judgment becomes this, this kind of a thing. Can I just remind you what Mike talked about in the prayer of examine? And you, I'm, I'm, I think you know what I'm saying, but let me repeat it. We believe as Christians that when we say yes to Jesus as Savior, he washes away our sins. Yes? We call that big word the invitation into relationship. This new life, new birth, we call it justification. It's just as if we've never sinned. So God looks at us as sinless. And the text of Scripture says we are adopted children. We are loved. We are co-heirs. So when judgment comes, when you and I die from this life to the next, and Christ returns to bring a new heaven and new earth, for us, it's not going to be, you're damned to hell. No. He's going to say, welcome home. You're my family. You're my children. I love you. I love you. I love, welcome. Welcome. And what's going to happen then? There'll be a new heaven and new earth, and it's going to be beautiful. All things will be made right. All things will be good. All things will be beautiful. And so we can live knowing we're going to die, embracing the time we have here, because the day will come when all will be good. Amen? But let me, let me talk about this now, because I'm going I'm to, I'm, so camera people, I'm going to be walking into the room. Because I don't want to do this far away. So I wrote this yesterday. I'm going to read a couple statements, but I'm going to walk down. I want to look. I want to be very, con- trying to, I want to connect personally with you as I make these statements. So here's one. I'm going to read about 10 or 6 or 7, 8, 9 of them. There we go. I am convinced 
that only a proper perspective on death gives us a realistic, hope-giving perspective on life. Living in light of my death, your death, will help us live wisely, freely, generously, abundantly. How about this? The book of Ecclesiastes is a meditation of what it's like when our lives are just a breath. I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 2, in a few minutes. And if praise, the text of chapter 1, 2 is this. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now that's a different way to, that word is hevel, H-E-B-E-L. We'll explain it to you in a video in a minute. The word can be meaningless, it can be vain, it can mean breath, it can be momentary, it may mean brief. Now think about that way. Brief, brief, everything is brief. Now when I understand that, that I'm only gonna live for a short time, and in this short time I am embracing how I actually, how life actually is, then I can say, Lord, I'm gonna live with the joy of the little things. So this is what he can say three different times. He says, you wanna live well today? So umbrella mercy, I'll show you the text in a couple weeks. Have a great meal with people you love. Have a glass of wine. I'm a teetotaler saying that to you. Have a glass of wine and share beautiful words with the people you love. If you know you're going to die, all of a sudden meals become sacred. So one of the action steps for this series is going to be, we're going to invite, everyone, every week I'm going to invite you, after worship, can you find some people, either friends or people who will make new friends? And could you create an opportunity to share a meal together and just share life? I'm going to suggest you take the few verses we're going to read in church on Sunday mornings and you read that with those you're having a meal with. Let me give you just an example. When, when we first came to Third Church and we had one season, we had two worship services in the morning and two at night. So we called it once to worship, once to disciple, one to serve. It was for a lot of reasons. Lane was concerned that our sons were going to hate the church because her dad was always gone. So she did a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. Every Sunday when I came home, we had the boys' meal. Ten pounds of potatoes, eight pounds of meat, a gallon of milk, a loaf of bread, some kind of vegetable, and dessert. And those boys lived for when their dad came home from church on Sunday morning. And we sat together around that table and we had a celebration on the Sabbath day. That's what I'm asking for. Could we create opportunities to have a wonderful meal? Could be, it could be peanut butter and jelly. But just gather with people and share life and just be, why am I saying that? Because if I know I'm gonna die, if I know I'm going to, so let me just, what if, what if um, Dr. Gritters tells me I have four weeks to live? If I knew I had four weeks to live, how would I live for the next four weeks? And all of a sudden, I would say to the people I love, can we have a meal together? Could we share some time together? Could, could, 
Could I bless you? Would you bless me? Could we, could, could we, could we make some deep connections? The reality is we're all going to die, but we don't think we will. So what we're trying to say in this series is acknowledge your death and now make connections. How about a couple more quick statements? We'll go this way this time. The, the teacher of Ecclesiastes wants the reality of our death to sink into our bones and lodge into our hearts. Why? Because he's writing a book about how to really live. If we can grasp that our time in this life is short and that is not able to be controlled, how will we live? In a couple weeks, you got to come back. I'm begging you, come every week for 12 weeks. But three weeks from now, on the 19th, you got to come. I have a killer, killer illustration. It's going to make so much sense, you're just going to go, oh my. Okay, how about this one? Now, I want you to listen to this sentence carefully. This last one. Rather than living shrouded in death, Ecclesiastes teaches us to live shaped by death. Shrouded in death means to be dressed for death. And we are terrified of death. Let me just give you just a little bit of history. Back in the day, 75, 80 years ago, when a person died, 100 years ago, I'm not sure exactly, there was often a place in a home called the parlor. Those of us who are older, know what I'm talking about? And the person who died was placed in the parlor. And people came to do respect. So in my second year here, over here, in part of town, one of our senior saints died. And the family had received permission to do this. They washed her body. They had hand-hewn a casket. They put her body in the casket on the kitchen table. And members of the third church family came to their home to the parlor to pay respects and remember the life of the one who had left us. Transition from this life to the next. What do we do in America today? We have funeral parlors and we dress the people in their nicest clothes so we look like we're not dead. What are we, what are, what are we doing as a culture Instead of dying in our homes around those who we love, we die other places. And we cover the horrors of death and the brevity of life and the transition of the life to come. Making sense? So what we want to do in this series is say, I, I, I'm, I'm going to die. And I, I, I'm, I struggle with I should say this or not. I don't know why this is so important to me. But I'll, I'll just lay it out here. I don't know if I have a, I have never had a burning in my gut to preach a series like I do for this one in 40 years. So I don't know if I'm going to die next year. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And so I have this desire to make sure I, I really communicate effectively, Lord, help me, because I'm going to die next year. Or, oh, I don't know, is something coming that we're going to face together that's going to be really, really big. 
And we need to have a really deep theology of death and life. I don't know, but something is coming. Is my death? I don't know. I don't know. My wife's death? I don't know. But I have a fire. I've got to communicate this with you. Is this making sense? Okay. So I, blah, 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 blah. Oh, here we go. Let me give you a sense now of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's about an eight or nine minute video from the Bible Project. And it gives you an overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. Would you watch this, please? The book of Ecclesiastes, it's part of the Bible's wisdom literature, and it opens with this line, the words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now in Hebrew, the word Kohelet means someone who has gathered people together. And in this case, it's to learn, so it's often translated in English as teacher. And the teacher is said to be a son or a descendant of King David. And so there are different views about who this figure might have been. Many think that it refers to King Solomon, others to maybe one of the later kings of David's line, and still others think that it's actually a later Israelite teacher who has adopted a Solomon-like persona as a teaching aid. Whichever of these views is correct, the key thing is to recognize that the teacher is a character in the book and is different than the author of the book, who remains anonymous. So we do hear the teacher's voice for most of the book, but it's actually a different voice, the author, who introduces us to the teacher in the first sentence and then at the end concludes the book by summarizing and evaluating everything the teacher just said. So the author is someone who wants us to hear all that the teacher has to say and then help us process it and form our own conclusion. So what does the teacher have to say? Well, the author summarizes the teacher's basic message at the beginning and right at the end. And it's hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. Now, most English Bibles translate this word hevel as meaningless, but that doesn't quite capture the heart of the idea. In Hebrew, hevel literally means vapor or smoke, and the teacher uses this word 38 times in the book as a metaphor to describe how life is, first of all, temporary or fleeting, like a wisp of smoke. But secondly, also how life is an enigma or a paradox. Like smoke, it appears solid, but when you try and grab onto it, there's nothing there. So there's so much beauty or goodness in the world, but just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes and it all seems to blow away. Or we all have a strong sense of justice, but all the time bad things happen to good people. So life is constantly, it's unpredictable, it's unstable, or in the teacher's words, like chasing after the wind. Hevel. Now that's kind of a downer. So why is he saying all of this? The author's basic goal is to target all of the ways that we try to build meaning and purpose in our lives apart from God. And he lets the teacher deconstruct these. So the author thinks we spend most of our time investing energy and emotion in things that ultimately have no lasting meaning or significance. And he lets the teacher give us a hard lesson in reality. You can see this most clearly in the opening and closing poems, which focus first of all on time and then on death. So the teacher says, you can spend your whole life working and achieving because you think that makes your life meaningful. You should really stop and consider the march of time. For all of the human effort that takes place in the world, nothing really ever changes. 
So sure, we develop technology and we build nations that rise and fall, but go climb a mountain and see if it cares. It was there long before any of us and it will be here long after. I mean, no one's even gonna remember you or anything you did a hundred years from now, but that mountain, it'll still be there. And the ocean will still be breaking on the beach and the sun will still rise and set. And so time will eventually erase you and me and everything that we care about. And if that's not disheartening enough, the teacher also can't stop talking about death all the way through the book, but especially in this poem near the end. He says, death is the great equalizer and it renders meaningless most of our daily activities. It devours the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor, no matter who you are, what you've done, good or bad, we're all gonna die and it's inescapable. So with these two ideas in hand, the teacher goes on to consider all the activities and false hopes that we invest our lives in to find meaning and significance like wealth or career or social status or pleasure. So you think working hard is going to make life worth it? Think about the stress and the toll that that takes on you, all the anxiety and the sleepless nights. And by the time you actually earn some wealth, you're going to be too old to enjoy it anyway. And then by the time that you have to pass it on to someone, they may not even be someone who cares about anything that you did. Or maybe you think pleasure is going to make life worth it for you. Go for it. You know, live for your vacations, live for the weekend party. Monday always comes. Hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. So what does the teacher advocate then? That we become pure hedonists or relativists? Well, no, that would be hevel too. The teacher acknowledges the ideas from Proverbs that living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, that these have real advantages. On the whole, life will probably go better for you. See, but the problem is that even living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, they're hevel too, because they don't guarantee a good life. Good people die tragically, and horrible people live long and prosper. There's just too many exceptions. And so even wisdom is a hevel. Again, not meaningless, but an enigma. Wisdom doesn't work the way you think it should all of the time. So what's the way forward in the midst of all this hevel? And here, paradoxically, the teacher discovers the key to the true enjoyment of life under the sun. It's accepting hevel. It's acknowledging that everything in your life is totally out of your control. About six different times at some of the bleakest moments in his monologue, the teacher talks about the gift of God, which is the enjoyment of simple, good things in life, like friendship or family, a good meal or a sunny day. You can't control these things. You're certainly not guaranteed them, but that's their beauty. When I come to adopt a posture of total trust in God, it frees me to simply enjoy my life as I actually experience it, not as I think it ought to be. Because even my expectations about what life ought to be are ultimately hevel, hevel. Everything under the sun is utterly hevel. And so the teacher's words come to a close. Right here at the end, the author speaks up again, and he brings it all to a conclusion. He says, the teacher's words are very important for us to hear. He likens them to a shepherd's staff with a goad, a pointy end, which might hurt when it pokes you, but he says the teacher is trying to poke you to get you to move in the right direction towards greater wisdom. 
The author then warns us that you can actually take the teacher's words too far, and you could spend your whole life buried in books trying to answer life's existential puzzles. Don't try, he says. You'll never get there. And so instead, the author offers his own conclusion, and it's this. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of humans, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And so the author thinks it's good to let the teacher challenge your false hopes and remind you that time and death make most of life completely out of your control. But what gives life true meaning is the hope of God's judgment. The hope that one day God will clear away all of the hevel and bring true justice to our world. And it's that hope that should fuel a life of honesty and integrity before God, despite the fact that I remain puzzled by most of life's mysteries. And that's the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. You see why it's going to take 12 weeks? So look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 11, and then just 12, 13, and 14 will be done. So the, he begins in chapter 1, the, the, the description, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now verse 2 is, is the repetition he's going to deal with through the whole book. Meaningless, meaningless, hevel, hevel, brief, passing, vain, vanity, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything, everything we strive for is vain. It's brief. It flies away. It's gone. Now, from verses 3 through 11, he's going to look at all of creation and compare that with how we live. Verse 3, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? And the answer is nothing. Now he goes to creation. Generations come and generations go. That's people. But the earth remains. So here's the point he's going to make. I'll show you later on. The point is we strive, we strive, we worry, we stress, we do all this stuff, and then we die, and the earth is still here, and it will always be here until Christ comes back. The sun rises, the sun sets, the mountains are there, the oceans are there, and we are just striving and striving and striving. He says, generations come, generations go. The earth remains the same. So he says the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, and round and round it goes, every turning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To replace the streams come from, the plate there they return again. All things are wearisome, meaning life is just hard. More than one can say. The eye has never enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Let me stop just real quick there. So there has been research about things like the internet, which we think are so cool. Well, if you follow the work of scholars, Aristotle was using the internet of his day. There is nothing new under the sun. We repackage. We think we are at the cutting edge of all this stuff. And those who look at life says, life comes, life goes. People live, people die. But the things we all these things think are new in some form have existed before. It's so interesting. And if you want later on, I'll give you the source for all that. It's just crazy. Verse 10. 
Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? He says, no, it was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Let me give you an example. So every week I walk to the cemeteries in Pella, and I remember the families whose loved ones are passed away. Let me ask you a question now. Would you tell me about your great-grandfather or your great-grandmother? What do they look like? Where do they live? What were their values? What was important to them? Who of us can remember anything about our great-grandfathers and grandmothers? That's his point. We die, we're gone, and life goes on. Unless, oh, oh, now chapter 12. Turn to chapter 12, 13 and 14. Unless, look at 13 and 14. Here's, this is where it gets so good. At the end now, he's going to recite, and you're at verse 9, the conclusion of the matter. Look at 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of all mankind. Fear God. So another wisdom book is the book of Proverbs. Does this sound familiar? The fear of the Lord, help me, is the beginning of wisdom. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. What did Jesus say the commandments were? You shall love the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourselves. What's our strategic plan called? Flourish in love God, love neighbor, love the world. Verse 13. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything, whether it's good or evil. And I've got to, I've got to read something I wrote if I can find it real quick. I've got, I've, got to, I've got to blow up our bad ideas of judgment. Listen to this. I wrote this yesterday morning. For the preacher, for the teacher of Ecclesiastes, eternity invades the present with the hope of judgment. The hope New Testament word is anticipation. The anticipation of judgment. Verse 14, just read, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Listen to this next sentence now. Stay with me. A couple minutes. Judgment can be a promise or a predicament. Judgment can be a hope or a fear. It all depends on how we understand it. It seems that Ecclesiastes harmonizes with the biblical idea of judgment. Listen now. It is a time of jubilation and celebration because judgment is the hope of a world restored, causing the world itself to break beyond its physical restraints into glorious praise. Romans 8. For all of creation groans in eager expectation, waiting, waiting, waiting for the judgment to come. Now, You know the song, Joy to the World, we sing at Christmas? It comes from Psalm 98. And it was used to not be sung at Christmas. It was sung when people thought, he rules the world with with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. The psalm looks to the day of judgment. 
So here it is, 12 weeks. Will we embrace the fact that we all will die? Embrace our own death. In that light, live. Enjoy today. Have a good meal. Love a friend. Be gracious. Enjoy the beauty of creation. Recognizing that when you leave this life, you're going to go into a life that is better than you can comprehend forever. And that frees us to live. So action steps. Can I have that slide, please, Jim? I, th I think our, our staff has asked that for this whole year, we're going to talk about the joy and the embrace of Sabbath keeping. So I think this is, I think I'll, I'll talk with staff this week, but these are my two. Repeat, repeat, repeat for 12 weeks. Could I invite you to come to worship? I invite you with the people of God. Why? To recenter, to refill, to reflourish. Eugene Peterson is my favorite author. When I took some doctoral work with him, he said something I never forgotten. He said, when we worship for a few moments as the people of God, our lives get re-centered. Together, we recenter. Why? So that we can be refilled with his goodness, his presence, know his kingdom. Why? So that we can go out to re-flourish. We can flourish in love. Specifically, and you're going to see this throughout Ecclesiastes, but join others in some kind of a celebratory meal with people you love or make new friends. I see Tim and um, Kathy Tripp way back here. Can I talk about you, Tripps? Okay. Tim and Tim, Tim, the Tripps are just amazing. Before COVID and all this stuff happened, they would basically, after the 11 o'clock service, walk around and ask people, Do you have a place to eat today? If you didn't, they'd invite you to their house. And they never knew how much food was going to need or who would come, but they just did it. And people just, and it was a celebration. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Can we just figure out ways for these next 12 weeks? Make new friends. Invite someone who maybe doesn't have a friend. Be a friend with family. Just, just invite. And whatever passage we read in the church on Sunday morning, just read it together. Talk about it for five or ten minutes. And enjoy your fellowship. We can embrace our deaths by living today, enjoying the good gifts of today. And then we think about the goodness to come. So please come back next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you are a good, good God. So we ask that we would live lives mindful of what is presently given to us, knowing our days are few, looking for the wonders of life to come. So we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Elders are going to serve communion in just a minute. Can I invite you to stand for the blessing? So as you leave, here are the Vimanans right here. We invite you to receive communion, a simple gift today. Please receive it. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God our Father, may the presence, the power, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you now and always. Amen. You see someone you don't know, could you give them a high five or a hug or an elbow or something? God bless. <laughs>